0: You're listening to Random Fit with hosts Wendy Batts and Ken Miller, winner of a Gold Markham Award for digital media.
1: Hello, everyone. Welcome to this week's edition of Random Fit with myself, Wendy Batts, and here with my friend and co-host, Ken Miller. Ken, how are you today?
0: I'm doing awesome, Wendy. How are you?
1: I am great and super excited about today. So um, those of you guys joining us, we have a very, very special guest and uh, that are, is going to come on board. And, you know, Ken, I know you have known Michelle for a long time, so I'm going to let you introduce him.
0: Yeah, um, definitely. I'm, I think I'm just as excited as you are to have our guest, Mr. Michelle Dalcourt. Uh, now, a brief description of, of what uh, Michelle is about um, and again, it does no justice, but once you get through this podcast and you listen to all the things that I'm sure he's going to impart upon us, um, you'll know what I'm talking about. So just a quick introduction about Michelle, and then we'll go ahead and bring him on. So Michelle Dalcourt is an internationally recognized industry leader in health and human performance. He's the founder and CEO of Institute of Motion and inventor of this lovely piece of equipment that I use, uh, the Viper Pro and the Viper and co-founder of PTA Global. Uh, he's served as an adjunct faculty at the University of San Francisco, great uh, school, by the way, and depart- in their department of uh, uh, sports science and also the adjunct fact- faculty of NAIT College School of Health Sciences. I am reading this because I don't want to mess that up. But um, you know, without further ado, let's go ahead and bring Mr. Michelle
2: Dalcordon. on. Yes, hey. good, good morning, good afternoon. Nice, yeah. nice to be here.
1: Thank you so much for joining us today. And again, I know uh, Ken and I have, we've known you a long time. You have been such an inspiration. And I think a lot of us would agree that know you uh, to our industry and what you've been able to bring forth education wise, as well as product wise. But Michelle, so our listeners know a little bit about you. Can you tell us how you got into the industry?
2: Yeah, sure, Wendy, thanks for that. Um, I was always kind of aligned to the academia and the academic side of things. And so for me, it was always an opportunity to discover and uncover, you know, all the many complex facets of the body, what makes it tick. And so that was really my foray into uh, my education that I did in Alberta, Canada, at the University of Alberta. I did my graduate and undergraduate studies up there. And really what I thought early on, Wendy, is I thought I I wanted to go into medicine, right? I thought I I would apply this idea of intervention strategies. And while I admire that greatly, and I still have a keen sense of, uh, you know, all the science that goes into that, immediately in that journey, I knew that I wanted to be part of more the health asset building side of the house, right? This idea of prevention, but even earlier than prevention, we'll talk about it today, health asset building. And what does that actually look like? I didn't know the terminology back then, but uh, that's certainly something that appealed to me in broad terms. And so, that led to my educational journey. And then it led to the formation and kind of the, um, the elements that, that brought me here today. So it really is, um, part of that particular journey of what, what, what is relevant to the body? How do we create sustainable health outcomes? Um, and you know, all those applications that kind of lie underneath that.
0: Awesome. Uh, I mean, that's, you know what and i and i and i think michelle that if you decided to go the by way of the the medical side of things you would have been a great physician doctor surgeon whatever it is that you would have done uh, just it. considering everything that um you know I've, I've seen you produce and seen you put out there and you know just having seen you at uh, this last idea conference mm-hmm. um again every time I have a chance to to be in an audience where you're presenting. Um, there's always something that I'm, I'm taking away. Um, but one thing that uh, you did present on at this last conference was the idea and the concept of odd position strength training, right? right? And you know, you've, you've done courses on this and I've seen you talk about it before, but I think it's one of those concepts where uh, if, you, if you're not using it, you need to understand what it is And how to implement it into your program, because it's got a a lot of application for, especially if you're in, you know, in the movement field and and you're working with clients. So can you tell us a little bit more about odd position training?
2: Yeah, for sure, Ken. So when we think about strength, I mean, obviously, strength is a is an outcome that a lot of folks want to have. They want to look at it. It's very popular in fitness and in performance nowadays. And if we look at strength and the definition of strength, it's the ability for our body through the many mechanisms to produce a force. Now, implicit within that is the notion that if I asked Wendy or Ken yourselves, how strong are you? A lot of times that really means for folks, what can you do one time volitionally, right? You get under a bar, you do a bench press, you do a squat, you do a deadlift, and you do it one time. And we'll call that a certain condition. So under that condition, you produce a force. And that's important. And we'll call that maximal strength. And so that's a definable element of strength or force production. However, when we look at the literature and we look at the the elements of strength, we look at that we can produce force under a variety of different conditions. And if we don't expose our bodies to all of those conditions, then we may be missing an adaptation that may be important. So the analogy that I might use is, if you took a farm kid and they were to wrestle a gym kid and you're a betting person, where's your money? And most of the time, if not all the time, the answer is always the same, which is it's on the farm kid. And then we scratch our head and we think, okay, what is a farm kid doing that the gym kid is not doing? Cause we can flip that too. We could say, hey, if, if a, uh, a farm kid went into the gym and was to lift with the gym kid, you might say advantage gym kid. And so there are these different conditions under which we introduce an input, we'll call it a perturbation, right? These, these inputs. And one of them is, you know, a variety of different ways in which we can interact with strength. So Ken, your point is what is odd position strength training? Well, that's a, that's a condition, a certain element of force production. And it kind of suggests what it, what it says, which is, An odd position doesn't mean your joints are in an odd position. It means that the load is in an an uncommon pattern of motion. It may be asymmetrically loaded. Think about a bale of hay, right? It's not perfectly centered in the body. It's off to one side and it may be off the midline, right? So in classic approaches in the gym, we tend to load everything up equally on both sides and we tend to lift it in a repeatable way for a set or a rep scheme. And that's good. Uh, all of that is useful, but what's also useful is the introduction to the notion that we might be going asymmetrical. It's, it's loaded to one side exclusively or more than the other. We're going away from the midline. So if we think about these things as being different inputs to the body, then the body receives these inputs. And then through the process of adaptation, it can actually adapt and it can super compensate, which means it gets better. And if we do that the right way, then odd position strength training allows us the introduction to different loads, different speeds, different angulations, all of which kind of result in this idea of farm strong. And if we think about farm strong transferring into life, transferring into sport, it's pretty important right because if we're a parent and we're interacting with our children that's never asymmetrical. if we love to play recreational sport or even pro sport none of that is symmetrical and we're never really in a neutral position so then the, the question is do we introduce ourselves to these odd positions that are not odd in life and sport at all they're just odd relative to our notion of what training has looked like for the past number of years then we have a consideration. We have a consideration of strength that can be maximal. It could be repetitious, which is endurance strength. It could be odd position, which is odd positions, unusual or uncommon patterns of motion that can triangulate and result really in more of an unbreakable or more of a prepared body as it relates to the many different defined, uh, parameters around force production kind of you know strength and right. so that's really kind of the broad uh notion of odd position strength training we see it all the time in functional means but very rarely in these rep set schemes that we see in the gym yeah so, and,
1: go uh, ahead wendy well i was going to say michelle you know with that again love love the analogy and the the farm versus gym But if someone doesn't have access to outdoors or a farm and they want to try some of this new odd positioning and maybe start to integrate it into what they're currently doing um, at the gym, what would you suggest for a beginner?
2: Yeah, I love that question, Wendy. And here's what's cool about the the gym. The new gym in the past kind of five years, particularly in the past year, we see different areas of the gym. Uh, The most popular areas in the gym that I see are not the traditional things that we might look at. They're still there and they're still important, but you see a lot of rigging for squats. You see a lot of turf zones now. So Wendy, the idea of a turf zone, that environment implicit within that environment is the ability to move, right? It's a turf kind of zone in a gym. There's a lot of space and I can start to move three-dimensionally and I can ally that movement with certain pieces of kit that are out there, right? So med balls, Uh, You might have your sandbags. Certainly our product, the Viper Pro, is born out of this idea of, can I take a bale of hay in the gym without the mess, right? The farm kid is stronger than the city kid when they're wrestling or when functional exercises are in place. So we have this environment of, let's say, the turf zone. And we have these pieces of uh, kit that associate themselves with this environment, the, the turf zone. And the introduction of these types of things can allow us to load the body. So to answer your question directly, Wendy, and it's a good question, it's kind of complex to say to the beginner or someone who's just introducing movement into the spectrum of their, of their training, You know, I want you to move your hands in different positions. I want you to move your legs and I want, to, I want you to do that concurrently. And then it's kind of the analogy, I'm gonna tap my head and try to rub my chest or my stomach and I can't do that, right? Because it's too complex. And what we can do is introduce a load and keep it static. So for instance, if I had whatever in my hands, right, if I had an implement of a free weight and I was to hold it in a unique in uh, aspect relative to my body. So let's say I held my hands, not in front of me symmetrically, but I, I grabbed a, a, you know, a load and then I positioned it, let's say off to my right side, it might be left because this is mirrored, I'm not sure, but off to my right shoulder and whatever that load is, I held it there. And so now it is uniquely odd because I'm, there's nothing on the, this side of the body, it's all on my right side. And so now the load pattern tends to be more towards my right side, which means my left side has to contract more to prevent me from falling over. But in this case, my hands are static. And then I might ask myself, well, if I have my hand static from a motor uh, control perspective, that's fairly easy. I can just hold it there. And then I can go through a motor task a squat, some sort of lunge, whether that's an anterior lunge straight ahead or a lateral lunge, which is in the frontal plane or a turn-based lunge, which is in the transverse plane. And then I can just think about my lower body and I don't have to consider my upper body in terms of coordination. So I've simplified and I've kind of chunked the exercise. And so in motor learning, chunking is reducing it down to some discrete input. Think about playing a musical instrument and playing notes instead of composition just yet, because that's the early phases of learning. And so when I start to look at those types of things, that's a really good introduction. I'm gonna hold my hands in some position relative to the body that is uncommon. However, all of my joints can still be aligned in suitable ways. So in that analogy, I take it off to my right shoulder. My spine can be still nice and tall. It can be still nice and neutral if I want it. Uh, My knees can be tracking where they need to be over my feet. Everything can be congruent in that regard. But all I'm doing is superimposing some sort of asymmetrical load to the body. And even for the listener here, we can go into a little bit of science that's still very clear that justifies why we would do this because of different inputs and different adaptations relative to the structures of the body. And that's important because... Uh, these adaptations have direct transfer into life and sport. So to me, Wendy, that's an easy start, right? It's an easy way to begin to introduce these types of schemes.
0: Now, Michelle, you you brought up a uh, you know your your Viper pro, which has has been a great asset uh, in my facility. Um, <clears throat> now, when it comes to odd position strength training, that that's how I actually introduce that that idea or that concept into our into the training sessions. Now, for that person that doesn't quite understand what the Viper Pro is, and you already mentioned what the motivation was for its invention,
2: can you tell us a little bit more about that? Absolutely, so I, I'm Canadian, right? So when we look at athletic populations to train, right at a university, I was able to work with a number of different other fitness professionals uh, and athletic professionals. To train athletes. Now, obviously, as a Canadian, most of the people that we saw were hockey players, and it was almost cliche, Ken, to say that the farm kid was stronger than the city kid, and there was more transferability. So the the toughest players in the game of hockey, and I don't mean fighting, I mean you know battling for position on the puck and strength on the puck, as we call it, were always these farm kids that were generally in a situation where they didn't go through the off-season training protocols that your city kid might, They don't go to the gym in the off-season. And yet the head scratcher was, well, how are they so darn strong when it comes to transferability on the ice? And what happened was we realized that what they did was chores. And chores required what we're kind of talking about right now. You always lift mass or you move farm equipment around or livestock around the farm. In odd or unusual positions. And if you repeat that enough times, you get proficient at generating force from uncommon positions. So then the question is, what is sport? And sport is all odd positions, right? It's all uncommon because it's chaotic, particularly a sport like hockey. So what we did is we t- took a look at that. We asked ourselves, how do we take a bale of hay in the gym without the mess? <laughs> and what we came up with was very simply a tubular structure that has different weights with different whole configurations in it. And that became a levered thing, right? A levered mass that we can take into a training conditioning environment and we can uniquely load it to the body in odd ways or in parallel ways to be able to mimic what they're doing as chores on the farm. So in essence, we're doing chores in the gym, right? In terms of the loading patterns. But we're necessitating the same type of transferability. So the elevator speech that I would give, because people would say, what is that? We would say, well, let me ask you a question. If you took a farm kid, they wrestled the gym kid. You're a betting person. Where's your money? They say farm kid. We say why? They typically say because they have this kind of farm strength. And we say exactly. That's like a bale of hay in the gym without the mess. And what's interesting, Ken, is the level of adoption. And we're blessed and we're very great grateful for this. The level of adoption by pro athletes uh, is enormous, and we haven't paid a red cent for this, and we're thankful for that. But what it tells us is they are gathering the same sensibilities that we did when we went through this thought process. And what was interesting is all the science, which I did not know at the time to the level I do now, uh, always indicated a unique advantage to this so the science when we take about you know neurological muscular function fascial connections and joint mechanics all underscored the value of the addition of this we're not saying better than we're saying an addition to we need to do both in order for us to be unbreakable
1: i love it and today on random fit myself wendy are here with um Ken Miller, my co-host, and then Michelle Dahlcourt. Jeez, I could not even say it today. Um, And Michelle, you have been talking to us about what's so odd about odd strength and the positioning of that. And I think it's really important that we start to incorporate this within our workouts. And you bringing into this piece of equipment called the Viper that you just talked about can every population, I mean, I know when we're talking about it, you're bringing up hockey and athletes and you you said there were some different, um, you know, weights associated. Is this something that seniors can use or is it usually more for athletes?
2: No, that's a great question. So what we would do is regress the strategy for any individual because the exposure to falls prevention in the older adult is just as important as let's say an athletic endeavor increase. And so the idea of whatever population we're dealing with is going to be uniquely how we introduce at what level and then how we grade and systematically progress the individual through the adaptation process. So let me carve it up this way, Wendy, if I was to approach this at any level, right? So if I'm 22 and I'm a high performing athlete, if I'm 82 and I just want to live an independent life, what I may do is approach some sort of training or conditioning or exposure to exercise, And I might ask myself, and I might go through this decision tree in my brain, and I would ask myself first, is today a workout or is it a work in? And what we mean by that is, is today an effort build day of increasing, let's say, sympathetic response. And so for the listeners, sympathetic tone is really a workout. It's an exercise regime. I'm I'm putting a, a stressor to the body. And within that stressor, the body can respond if the conditions are right and it can adapt. So that's the workout piece. The other one is a work in. And a work in is devoted to reducing stress, increasing what we would call parasympathetic dominance, which is this idea of rest or digest. And it kind of resets the system. Now, years ago, that was just, hey, take a day off. Now, for the listener out there, we all know that that is there's a lot of what we call recovery supplements out there, right? Plunging and light therapy and, you know, sleep strategies and all of these things that are in the clinical realm and the non-clinical realm to augment recovery. It's not just taking a day off It's how can we augment the effects of recovery through nutrition, through some sort of biohack, if you will, right? Recovery supplements. That's all in, in the ether of the consideration for the individual nowadays. So that's part of the work in day. So now we've got this two decision tree workout, work in, well, let's go down the workout route, right? Because we're talking about it. The next thing is what do I want to do as an outcome? And if increasing strength is part of that, then my decision tree is, is it a muscular strength day or is it a movement strength day? Now for the listener, they might say, well, what's the difference? Well, muscular strength is typically, I'm going to say your classic bodybuilding. We're going to fragment the body into parts. We're going to overload those particular areas in an order to get time under tension, which increases the cross-sectional area of a muscle because of the signaling of satellite cells because you're you're focusing the stress on one area. So you overload that area. So it it creates a cascade of different hormones and signaling processes that result in uh, hypertrophy, which is basically the muscle getting bigger. And that's a good thing, right? So we can use that as part of our consideration. The other consideration is movement-based strength. Now that's something we haven't really considered perhaps or even heard of, but movement-based strength is task driven. So when we throw something, it's not a a shoulder exercise, it's a body exercise. If I'm gonna hit a, a ball with a bat, it's not a shoulder or trunk or core exercise, it's an entire body exercise. If I'm swinging a golf club, my feet are just as important to generate force As every other link in the kinetic chain. And so with these task-based elements of life and sport, then movement-based strength is task-based, right? We're not just focusing in on arms or shoulders or chest or anything else. It's body. So another way to say this is, you know, what are you training today? It's body day. Oh, are you training You know the, the calves? Yeah, it's body day, right? And that is a, de- a slight departure away from the mental models that we have right now when we approach a structured exercise program. So when we have that movement-based strength, Wendy, then it's just a matter of, okay, we're training the body to be strong as a body. Then what do we choose, right? 82 versus 22 years old. Well, the 82-year-old, Let's put you in an environment that allows you to make mistakes and self-organize the task that could be in water, that could be sitting on a chair, that could be kneeling down or laying down, or that could be standing if I've got proficiency, but maybe more points of contact with the ground, i.e. I'm holding onto something that is attached to the ground or, you know, my own two feet, but I'm again, pre-positioning something and going carefully through a movement task that I'm quite familiar with. And that is a way to systematically regress and allow for safety. And what I said earlier, we believe is very true. Put a person in an environment to allow them to make mistakes. Now that sounds precarious. Well, if the environment is safe enough to allow them to make mistakes, the net result of that is your body can make mistakes. And mistakes are inherently important for motor learning. Think about when we first Learn to walk. We may not remember that ourselves for our own <laughs> bodies, but watching a child walk for the first time, they're going to be very safe. They might hold on to a couch, they might hold on to a coffee table, and one day they're going to stand up and they're going to keep holding on, and their legs are all wobbly as they're hanging on to something. And those wobbles are actually called perturbations, and they are necessary to allow feedback to bathe the system so that the body can figure it out and then one day they let go and the wobbles get even more and then they take the first step and the first step is not a giant step it's a very very short step that is percussive and all the while they're bathing themselves into kind of wobbliness all of this feedback loop allows them to be more proficient as they learn And the learning process is very important as it relates to capacity and function of the body. And we can do that even at 82. And so the idea here is that we have this whole process. And then it's, Wendy, it's just a matter of regressing effectively and then systematically adding layers of complexity to this. So,
0: Michelle. great great points that you bring up and and I and I love the fact that you know as as far as the active aging those that are involved with sport and movement um we, we have to give them that opportunity like you said to 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 make those mistakes and and using the viper the viper pro as another point of contact is something that I've implemented into basically almost well every not almost every every workout so uh, one fundamental movement that I like to use is the viper tilt where you're having it stand on end and for most people it's going to be about chest high and you you stand that that tube that is the viper pro and you lean forward, you you reach forward with the arms as you allow your hips to come back and that's that's been important for a lot of my clients especially those that forget how to hinge at the hip Mm -hmm. so a lot of these fundamental movements like hinging squatting lunging for example you can definitely accent or give them a little support they need to get a little bit more range of motion, um, get that perturbation that you're talking about to where we're getting the muscles, the nerves, the fascia, all those things that send that proprioceptive input back to the nervous system to say, hey, we can go here, and then eventually, you know, you encourage your clients to want to go there. So, some some great points there in in the fact that you know using the Viper Viper Pro isn't just for athletes, but for those athletes like Wendy that you work with a lot that are reconditioning, getting back into shape, that might have forgotten, you know, quote unquote, forgotten how to move, right? And and it's it's one way to get them to remember how to, especially, you know, if you have a 65, 75 year old person who's who's lost that connection. Um, But the the one thing, Michelle, regarding the Viper and the Viper Pro, we you've you've mentioned both and, and I have both in my facility and I use them for all my training sessions. Can you explain the difference that that that's a question that I get a lot. Can you explain the difference between the Viper and the Viper Pro just for oh, clarification? Sure. For yeah, guys, great can question. you see it.
2: Yeah, yeah, great question. Uh it's it's pretty easy. Uh Apple phone iPhone 1 versus iPhone 10. <laughs> it's just it's basically an upgrade, right? So it's just as we go through we learned uh a design I mean it's a simple design. So think about a tube that should you know is about maybe four feet and four 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 and a half feet depending on what size or what weight you're 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 interacting with. The width is anywhere from six inches to you know ten inches uh, depending on the weight, and uh, it's got a bunch of holes in it. So pretty simple design, uh, you know, not a radical you know invention of thought in terms of design. But our point is the more simple, the tool, the more it's a, it's an inverse relationship, right? The more simple, the design, the more utility it has, think about a complex machinery, it it probably does one thing really well, but a barbell, a dumbbell, a kettlebell, pretty simple design, right? A kettlebell is a bowling ball with a handle on it, and you can do a variety of different things with it. And so think about that in the same vein as, as our tube. And so. The Viper and the Viper pro is just an upgrade. Uh, these design features are, are a result of the sensibilities and the learnings that we've applied over the past number of years. And so that's really the big difference. Perfect.
1: Well, today on random fit, what's so odd about odd positioning strength. We're talking with Michelle Delcourt. And he has been so amazing. And if you guys have not had a chance to see him in person present and go over some of this stuff, I mean, phenomenal. But uh, Kim Miller and I are eating all of this up, I know. Um, And so we were super excited to have him on Random Fit. But to kind of piggyback off of everything we've talked about, Michelle, can you go? You always talk about this roadmap and, and having this programming roadmap. And as a trainer, we need to have that for our clients and give them the next step and the next tool based on movement patterns. But you talk also about eye training. So can you talk to us about the importance of that and how that fits into a roadmap?
2: Yeah. So the roadmap essentially is, can we prepare the body adequately well? And then can we introduce some overload? elements, we'll call it performance overloads. And that again, performance could be at 82 years old, right? I want to perform well when I go down a set of stairs at 82, right? So the performance is relative to my world, but can we prepare adequately well and then perform or introduce this overload or, or these performance indicators in my, the, the meat of my workout. So the roadmap is a very simple approach to say, well, what do I do or what can I consider when I prepare for a session? And what can I consider as I prepare for, you know, the, the meat of my workout or the meat of my particular exercise regime. And in the preparation piece, we think about, well, what sort of things do I need to prepare for? Well, core stability would be one that is universally, I think, accepted by this point as being something that is important, right? So how do we actually create core stability? How do we facilitate all the muscles of the core? And that we can talk about, but we use tasks for that because we really anchor into all that research by Zajac and Gordon and all these others in the early eighties that did some seminal work on functions of muscles. So what, what the nerves and muscles do in, in life and how we can authenticate that. So we use a unique element to increase the kind of the core function in, in relationship to certain tasks. Then the next thing we consider is eyes. So ocular motor input is very, uh, very important, right? So we have three inputs. We have proprioception, which is to the periphery sensory into the central nervous system. We'll call that afferent signals. Uh, then we have inner ear, right? So balance and motor control of the vestibular system, which is all the cilia and all the, the uh, so there's fluid and there's kind of this hair-like structure in the inner ear that allow for equilibrium and writing reflex responses which are uniquely important. Uh, And then there's the eyes. And so interestingly enough for coordination, we can have two of the three, but if we lose two of the three, then it's pretty impossible for us to be coordinated. So I can close my eyes and move. uh, But if I close my eyes and shake my head, which means I've reduced or eliminated my ocular motor input visual, and I've shaked my head back and forth, and I've eliminated my vestibular, there, it's really impossible for me to maintain balance. So that would be, you know, a, a, a non-useful way, but I can reduce one, right? Or I can limit one. I can close one eye, but in order for us to really consider these things, what we do is we do a lot of eye training, right? And we have for many years, right? Because life and sport for the most part, for most individuals is going to heavily rely on this visual input. And because we're staring at screens most of the day, we tend to reduce its ability to function well. And we couple that with a visual field that's always at a certain distance and that's it. So we lose variability of of eye movement and eye control. So Wendy, when we think about this, there are six muscles that control the eye in terms of movement, right? So it can move it up and down, it can move it left to right, it can move it in circles and those six muscles that control the eye and the eye lids right so if i you know open my eyes big that's the orbicularis oculi i can really open up the eyes big and then there are four nerves that control the eyes three of them are motor and one of them is sensory right so the eyes are looking in and it's giving some sort of feedback into my body that's one nerve and then three of the nerves control eye movement motor control So in order to train them, and then by the way, we've got two muscles that control focal length, right? So the ciliary muscles and the iris control focal length. So near to far, far to near, those are small muscles that control the aperture of the eye. So when we think about all of this, it's trainable, right? Now we might think, well, it's good for a baseball player because they've got about, you know, a tenth of a second to see what pitch is coming. But it's good for all of us because do you think falls prevention that's massive in terms of you know if i can create and maintain eye capacity so i'm going to quickly hone in on two things for the listener there's two ways in which we can train this there's more but two simple ways there's what's called eyes on body and body on eyes so eyes on body which means i'm going to keep my head still and i might say okay we're going to get to the prayer position so if you can see me I'm going to go like a prayer and I'm going to tuck and I'm going to leave one of my hands there. So it's kind of ch- tucked underneath the chin. And then I drop one hand and I leave a hand at my chin and then I've got this free hand here. And that is to allow my head to stay where it is. I might open my eyes large, which looks a little weird, but we, we'd argue things are weird until they're not right. <laughs> so eyes are big and then I'm looking at my nail, but I'm looking at my thumbnail and I'm not looking at a specific area within the thumbnail. Maybe it's a, you know, a cuticle, maybe it's a certain aspect of, you know, a a white aspect or a darker aspect. And what I'm gonna do is with my eyes open big, I'm gonna track my eyes and I'm going to kind of extend and discover what my end ranges are at each of the corner, at each of the areas of my visual field, right? So chin is locked with my prayer position hand right here on my chin, open my eyes big. And if I look down here and I see that, okay, I can still see my thumb, but obviously I'm in the lower right portion of my visual field. Then I might go up to the top right portion of my visual field. I might come to center to the opposite side. And here's what I might urge the listeners to do. If ever you're looking at a book for too long, a screen for too long, and then you kind of come out of that environment and you can't see very well, right? Everything's kind of obscure because your eyes have been locked for that long. Or you're trying hard to read something at a grocery store or you're reading ingredients and the fine print is too fine do this put it away for a second so let's say you're at the grocery store and you're trying to read what's on the you know pasta sauce put that uh jar away for a second if you're willing to do this at a grocery store try it (laughs) you know get into that kind of prayer position open your eyes big and people are going to look at you funny but that's okay and I want you to experiment with looking at your specific spot on your nail and explore all four corners of your visual field and try to get a focal point in each one of them. Right? So do that for let's say 30 seconds and then go back and read that fine print. And what most of you will be amazed with is that you can read it because what you've done is you've trained or you've created a facilitation of an input to train in this case, your focal length. Those muscles get tired, they get weak just like any other muscles. And if we expose the individual to an increased in effort as it relates to how do I fight to try to keep these muscles trained, guess what? They're going to be better trained. And so when it comes down to looking at a visual field that's fine print, I'll have an increased capacity to do it. And what you might be surprised with is how quickly you can actually reestablish that. And then if you want to maintain it, you want to hold on to it, you want to introduce that training over time.
1: I'm going to definitely try that the next time I go to the grocery store because I bought these glasses, Michelle, and I refuse to wear them. So super cute, just not wearing them.
2: (laughs) When you try it, you might be surprised.
1: I'm, I'm totally going to try it. I'm going to go and pray after this. You wait.
0: (laughs) That reminds me, I got to go pick up some pasta sauce when I go to the grocery store. Uh, (laughs) So, so Michelle, um, a lot of great information that you've, you've imparted onto us, you know, uh, farm versus gym, visual training, uh, you know, um, perturbations, the, the need for this, as you, as you go through the life cycle. Um, now, just to just to give our listeners an idea, and for those of you listening to us or watching us here on Random Pit with both myself, Ken Miller, and Wendy Batts, we have special guest today, Mr. Michelle Dalport. Um, so, Michelle, you have, not only are you an educator of personal trainers and you've applied this with your athletes and, and you having a strong academic background yourself, um, you've actually put this out into the world as far as being able to work with corporate wellness, right? Mm -hmm. And you you have a program um, called Wellcology, right? And this is how you're taking it to the masses. And I I know you've done some things too, internationally as far as helping change lives, you know, of the country of Singapore. So with with that being said, Michelle, can you share with us the approach you use with not just Singapore, but also with what you've done with Wellcology?
2: Yeah. Yeah, Ken, I appreciate you asking that question. So, you know, for us broadly, yes, we have you know some equipment that is uniquely in the performance and fitness space. The other company that I have that you see might see in front of you is IOM. And IOM stands for the Institute of Motion. And really what it is, it's an applied health and human performance company. So we're not clinical in terms of doing clinical research. What we do is we apply the science of health. In a, of human performance. Now, largely in this conversation today, we talked about performance, not just performance for youngsters, but performance for older adults too. Can I increase capacity to be able to better my life? That's performance. Health and health indices are really general baseline values that I can bolster up in order to be well, sustainably. So if we look at the determinants of health, it's not just physical, it's physical, it's mental, emotional, it's social, economic. These are individual determinants of health that are the most actionable. So there might be genetics, family history, but they're not as actionable as physical, right? What I, How I move, how I eat, how I recover, that's physical. Mental, emotional are things like purpose, mindset, emotional intelligence, right? The, emo- the ability to be emotionally aware, emotionally disciplined, seek emotional outlets, that's emotional health. And then this idea of, um, the idea of cognition, right? So mental, emotional would be cognition, brain health, executive function, that's mental emotional. And then social economic is really social pieces, relationships, social ability, social aptitude. These are aspects of social health, right? How do I integrate in my society? How do I value relationships so that, there is security and there's also this ability that I can give to others within my social ability tendencies, right? Am I more introverted, extroverted, that sort of thing. So we uncover that. And then of course, the economic piece is financial health. So within that, that is at the individual level. So if we apply that, we can apply that to the individual and we can apply that to a collective. And what we did is we worked with the Singaporean government to found what's called active health. So we co-authored this and we birthed it to the entire nation of Singapore. That's a large constituency. However, in that constituency, environment dictates behavior. Now, if you're a behavioral change specialist, we would know that the the trans theoretical model of behavior change, very highly effective. And it's a process, right? To go from pre-contemplation to mastery. And it's highly effective and we believe everybody ought to go through that process. Allied with that is the notion that environment also dictates behavior. So when we think about non-communicable diseases, diseases of behavior, they are in some sense communicable, not in the airborne virus sense, but in the behavior sense. Cause I tend to behave like the proximity of my social group around me. And because of that, Non communicable diseases are somewhat communicable in that sense. So we can look at it that way. And if that's the case, well, ecology is really a mashup of two words well being, which is physical, mental, emotional, social, economic. That's well being. Ecology is an environment, it's an ecology. And we interact with all of these ecologies that we have, and they shape behaviors because willpower is finite right? But interacting with an ecology or an environment is forever with us. And we tends to, our willpower tends to go down because I just interact with my environment. If I've got no, you know, ice cream in my, in my freezer, that's my environment. The chances of me not eating it are zero. But if it's in my, in my freezer and I'm thinking, you know, I'm just going to use willpower. I know myself that sooner or later, I can convince myself that I deserve that ice cream and it's going to be okay, right? And that may be awesome at the right time, uh, but environment does dictate behavior. So, well, ecology can is wellness or well-being, and the ecology, can we actually coach up well-being, the facets of well-being? Because they can they reflect in the design elements of a of a space, and can we actually birth that and coach that into an organization or into a collective as part of the ecology? And if we do think about corporate wellness, if we do, it's not something that a, a corporation or an entity or an enterprise does anymore. That's corporate wellness. It's something we do, but wellcology is not something we do. It's something we become. And that is innately in the design aspects of any, any collective it could be a corporation, it could be a family, it could be a government. It could be a large constituency or community. And that, are, that ladders up to this idea of social determinants of health or societal determinants of health, which are I- I different than individual determinants of health. So wellcology is really a structure of an ecosystem that we intentionally design and coach in to allow communities, collectives, to be able to shape new sensibilities around health and health outcomes. And we call that health asset building.
1: So much information and doing so many great things across the world, if you will. Um, but I have one final question because right. I know we're running short on time. But Michelle, if for our listeners, we've covered so many different variations of topics that are all super important to our health. But right. what would you leave us as your final words?
2: You know, I think that you know, Wendy. I appreciate that. I think that you know, we each have our own journeys, and I know that we navigate these particular journeys in whatever goal, whatever preference we have and whatever states of readiness we have. And, you know, for all the fitness professionals that are listening out there, I think it's incumbent on all of us to be able to reflect on the broad aspects of the opportunities that can exist, particularly going through the past three years, right? So if we look at these types of things, Obviously it exposed a lot of gaps perhaps, and a lot of uh, you know kind of sensibilities that perhaps we didn't have. So looking at the entire person as a whole, as a union of physical, as a union of mental and emotional and, and social, and each of these things can help each other. And they're not uniquely focused in on one thing alone. I don't address physical means by physical means alone or social means by social means alone. But if we can have a sensibility that we're dealing with an entire person and as an individual, we are the agents uh, of change. We can affect those that are around us in positive ways by virtue of leaning into the physical pieces, the mental, emotional pieces and the social pieces within our scope of practice. But we're able to reflect on what those things are, what they mean for others, and how they can be reflected in yes programming and yes coaching, but even in our day-to-day lives as it relates to design, I think then what we do is we ladder up to this idea of health asset building, and we get away from the dogmatic ideological thinking. And I know we're all susceptible, particularly in fitness. We've got a unique ideology, and we love to, you know, promote that, and that's great. But you know, let's avoid throwing grenades at another viewpoint because you know we ideologically think of one there are many different ways in which we can impact physiology, performance, adaptation and also health and health outcomes. and i think we have a unique advantage of coming together in that facet. so for you know for me huge thanks to organizations like the NASM and others for becoming, you know, the catalyst to say hey, we can position educational constructs so that we can create an opportunity to look at things so that it gives the capacity for more people to provide more help for others, because in turn, what that does is it creates a network, and that network can be very powerful to lean into some of the challenges that we're facing nowadays, which is decreased health outcomes. Awesome!
0: Um, <laughs> I don't, I don't know where to take that, man. Uh, that's, I mean, uh, you touch on so many points, and you know, just again, for those of you that have had a chance, if you listen to this pod podcast in its entirety you're going to come away with and i've got already two pages of notes here um as i always do michelle when when i have a chance to listen to you speak so thank you so much um for for being on uh random fit so michelle hopefully we'll have you back uh, some other time um that you know fits your busy schedule with with everything that you're doing um but uh i mean A lot of information. I mean, I could show you my notes, but a lot of great stuff. Um, Listen to this once, twice. I know I'm going to. So for those of you listening to us here on Random Fit, thank you so much. Um, On behalf of both Wendy Batson and I, myself, Ken Miller, thank you. Uh, Like, follow, subscribe, download, share, comment, let us know what else you want us to talk about on Random Fit. So until next time, take care and be well.